So today's Nach Yomi is Sefer Shemuel Aleph, Perek Chet. We have been discussing the story of uh, Shemuel, basically, and the... Uh, and in last week's, uh, or in yesterday's rather, in yesterday's discussion, we saw how the leadership of Shmuel was so transformative for the Jewish people. And that story really is going to continue, but also in a way, take a totally different turn in, uh, in today's uh, parak. To Just to mention that our series on Shmuel Aleph is generously sponsored, has been generally sponsored, generously sponsored by uh, Ariel Kalati, and family in memory of Dorina Kalati Zichonade Bacha. It's also been generously sponsored by uh, Charlotte Cheverdi for the Hatzlacha, the success and the continued uh, growth and expansion of uh, Yeshivat Deava Haskel. And uh, other sponsors are certainly welcome and encouraged to join us as well for uh, the support of our learning. Tonight we have as well an additional sponsor for Rufuash Lema. Just want to get the name of the Fashema from Benji Koren. He gave me the uh, the name of Rufuash uh, Lema for Rachel Batchana. Rachel Batchana. Elna Rafanala, Elna Rafanala, Elna Rafanala. Tonight's learning or today's learning, if you are in in America, is uh, is sponsored by all of these generous contributors. So we are beginning in Shmuel Aleph Perik Chet Pasuk Aleph Ahi Kasher Zaken Shmuel. So we see that. Very quickly, we transition from Shmuel uh, just having started out his career to Shmuel is already elderly. We saw that he took a lot upon himself because he was constantly traveling across the country, spreading the word of Hashem, maintaining and sustaining the focus of the Jewish people on the Dvar Hashem. And uh, it fast forwards very quickly to the end of his career. And the reason for that is because the Navi in general is not really interested in telling us the biographical details of Shmuel or even the uh, historical detail of what might have transpired at a particular point in Jewish history. That's not so significant. The main point in the story of Shmuel, as we really emphasized yesterday, is to show the transition from a, or really the relationship or the correlation that exists between the Jewish people following the Derech Hashem, the Jewish people when they have the proper understanding of God and the proper orientation towards Judaism, a non-magical, non-superstitious, non-idolatrous attitude and understanding of Judaism and how that led them to see then the hand of God's providence in their, you know, in their military conflicts, in their economy, in everything, in all dimensions of success, uh, everything was changed for the better when their ideology, when their religious consciousness, when their understanding of Torah, the relationship with God changed, so too did everything else. That was the deciding factor. And when they were rooted in an idolatrous, distorted, materialistic, superstitious, magical way of thinking that was fostered by, or at the very least not prevented by, not fixed by B'nai Eli, but, if, but most likely was actually fostered by them and uh, promoted by them because it enriched them, um, when they were... In that mindset, nothing could save them. Uh, and, and so the removal of that, of the objects that sustained that kind of an unhealthy relationship with Judaism, such as the loss of the Aron for 20 years, it goes into hiding, basically. 
That was necessary for them to be rehabilitated. That was the main point. So what did Shmuel do for the rest of the decades of his uh, career as a leader of the Jewish people? It's not that important. The main thing to know is not the particular things he taught or the specific um, occurrences or the details of the battles. That's not really what concerns the Navi. What concerns the Navi is this main point the lesson that, which is really the lesson that goes all the way back to the Chamisha Chum Torah. It really goes back to the Kriyat Shema that we read twice a day. If the, if the Jewish people listen to the commandments of God and they follow Hashem, then they're going to see every, every type of success. And if they follow other gods, even if they think what they're doing is Judaism, but in reality what they're doing is distorting, watering down, twisting Judaism to fit with some other agenda, then what's going to happen is all the klalot that come to pass. Really, that is the lesson of the Navi um, playing itself out over the centuries. And so that is the main thrust of the shift that happened during the time of Shmuel. And now we fast forward to the conclusion of Shmuel's uh, career, which in fact the rabbis say that Shmuel did not live to be very old. He lived, he passed away at a relatively young age. But he placed his sons as judges. Now, ostensibly the reason for that would be because he was taking a lot on himself. He was really intensely involved in the leadership of the Jewish people and there was only so much he could take at a certain point in age, health, whatever. Couldn't sustain it anymore. These were the two names of his sons. Shoftim Shava. They were in Be'er Sheva, not too far from where I am sitting right now, about uh, a 30-minute drive from here, maybe 40-minute drive from uh, where I'm sitting now, in Be'er Sheva. So that was where they were located. A little bit further for you, Johnny. But his, uh, his uh, sons did not follow his ways. They went after unjust gain. They went after material gain. They went after the uh, the money. They took bribes and they they twisted the judgment. They uh, literally, it means they angled it. They turned it away from the truth. Um, and the interesting thing is the rabbis say here, just like they said about the Bnei Eli, that Kol HaOmer Bnei Eli Chatu, a very famous Gemara in Masechet Shabbat. Kol HaOmer Bnei Eli Chatu, anybody who says that the Bnei Eli really slept with women outside the Beit HaMikdash or outside Shiloh, which was the house of the Mishkan at the time. Anybody who says that, Eno Elotoi is making a mistake. And so to where they say that anybody who says Bnei Shemuel Chatu, Eno Elotoi, meaning they didn't really take bribes. What did they do according to Chazal? According to Chazal, what they did was they made a bureaucracy. Okay? In other words, Shemuel went around and as it mentioned at the very end of the previous parak, he went around free of charge, serving the Jewish people, giving his all, teaching, correcting, um, answering questions, judging cases, resolving disputes, clarifying matters across the country. And then when he came home, everybody would come to him. He was, a, he was the possession of the community. He didn't take anything for himself. That was Shmuel's attitude. His sons made a bureaucracy. They said, look, if we're going to be professional judges, a professional judge, he has a, you know, he has a pension, he has a salary, um, you know, you have to pay the court fee when you come in, you have to, we have to have a, uh, uh, a maskira, we have a secretary in the front, you know, she has to be paid, and then the guy who makes the records, he has to be paid, and then, in other words, they made a bureaucracy out of the process, that was considered to be a downgrading of what Shmuel had been doing. Now, the reason the Chazal are saying this, I would suggest, 
and I think that the Mefarshim even pointed out, is that it says, It says the sons of Shmuel did not follow in his ways. Now if the sons of Shmuel went so far away from the path of Shmuel that they were literally corrupt and taking bribes and they were putting, they were judging cases uh, completely falsely just based upon who paid them a bigger bribe, then it wouldn't be called not following the path of Shmuel. That would be a lot more egregious of a sin, a lot more terrible of a sin than saying they didn't follow the path of Shmuel. So, so therefore the rabbis say the fact that they took a step into the business model of religious services was itself called taking bribes. Now, if we put the whole arc of the story, and I'm, and that's uh, no pun intended, actually, because we talked about the arc before, but you know, the whole narrative flow of the story in perspective, what we see is that going back to the Bene Eli, they were the extreme form of selfish leadership. They were in it for the aggrandizement and the enrichment and the pleasure and the gratification of their of themselves. And the people will, were tools to that. And they were indifferent, really, to the spiritual needs of the people. Shmuel was going on the opposite uh, side. He went completely to the opposite level. He was fully devoted to the people. Even his service was a korban olam. As we said yesterday, korban olam means the human being doesn't get anything. It's purely for God. Everything Shmuel did was purely spiritual, purely intellectual, purely moral. No material interest or personal interest whatsoever was involved on the side of Shmuel. And so Shmuel is the opposite. He's the overcorrection of the Bnei Eli. The sons of Shmuel, by taking a step back in the direction of Bnei Eli and saying, you know what, if we're going to do this to, uh, you know, as a full-time job, how are we supposed to live? I mean, we, we need to make a parnasa, we need to make a living, we need to find an income, we have to charge money for this and for the form, you know, this form requires this and this form of that. You know, the way that the Batei didn't do it today, you know? So they just wanted to professionalize matters. That's what the Chazal say. But that lowered the stature of what they were doing. It made it into a kind of a business. And it's really true that once money gets involved and once business gets involved with religion, it always lowers the, the level of perceived reverence, the reverence and the sense of sanctity that people have um, when approaching it. And, um, and that's what happened in the times of the sons of Shmuel. According to the rabbis, in other words, if you take the pshat, that they actually took bribes. So then we could see that that means that really they, uh, that they were uh, attracted to money and that they were, uh, you know, they were materialistic. And in that way, they, they weren't as bad maybe as the B'nai but we can't really tell. In other words, they got involved in, uh, they were influenced by money and they were influenced by power and maybe even took bribes. As if we take the pasuk literally, it means they took bribes. It means that they were, uh, that they were really actually corrupt. But even if we take this, the Chazal's view that they weren't fully corrupt, but they weren't sufficiently sensitive to how, uh, uh, how much of an issue it would be for the people to lower the esteem that they had for the religious leadership and to turn it into a business. How much of a turnoff that would be and how disastrous that would be for the people. <coughs> because they didn't think of that, it caused them to, uh, 
it caused them to, uh, you know, their downfall. So it was as if they took bribes. They might as well have taken bribes is really what the way the Chazal are interpreting it. But again, you can take it literally, or and some of the Mifarshim do take it literally, or you can take it in the vein of Chazal that it's not to be taken literally. But what it means is that they, um, not that they created a business, a non-for-profit business where they, you know, they had uh, clerks and whatever that were taking money and they this, but that they... Uh, that actually they were taking bribes. Either way, what happened was, all the elders of Israel come to Shmuel. Listen, you've gotten old Shmuel, you're going out to uh, uh, retirement, and and your sons have not gone in your ways. So just give us a king like all of the nations already. Now, there's something positive about this initiative because they're turning to the Navi. They're turning to Shmuel and asking him to appoint a king. So it, they still recognize the authority of Shmuel as the ultimate sage and the person who should be making that de- decision and establishing the monarchy. But they want a monarchy. And the question is, what has happened here? What has broken down that has led them to want a king? Is it right? Is it wrong? We're going to get to that. But now it says, "Vayera davar bene Shmuel kasher amur tena lanu melech leshoftenu vayitpalel Shmuel al Hashem." This was bad in the eyes of Shmuel that they wanted a king, so he prayed to Hashem. Vayomer Hashem et Shmuel shema bekol ha'am. Hashem tells him, "Listen to the people." Lechol asher yomoroi lecha ki lo otcha maasu. It's not you that they are hating. Ki oti maasu mi melochalehem. They hate me. They don't want me to be their king. Like everything that they did from the day that I took them up from Egypt until today, they abandoned me and served other gods. That's what they're doing to you? What is the connection between the two things? <coughs> it's very strange. In other words, we can look at what the people are doing and say, look, up till now they had Shmuel, this person who is beyond reproach. He's running things. Now they have a bureaucracy and they say to themselves, you know what? <clears throat> Once you have a bureaucracy, it's so easy for the bureaucracy to become corrupt. It's so easy for the bureaucracy to become self-serving. We're going to go back to what it was under Bnei Eli. It's going to break down and become a free-for-all of the most powerful is going to use their influence to manipulate and this and that. We might as well just have a king who's above everyone, who judges us like every other nation does, and who puts everyone in line and who has authority and make sure that the, the strong don't take advantage of the weak and so on, and is able to keep everything in order. We don't want to fall into chaos like we did during the times of Eli. What does that have to do with idolatry? What does that have to do with uh, them hating Hashem? And why would Hashem first say to Shmuel, they don't really hate you, they hate me, but then say, they're doing it to you. <laughs> in the beginning, he says, they don't really hate you, they hate me. But then he says, and what they did to me all those years by abandoning me and, and worshiping idols, now they're doing to you. Which one is it? Is it against Hashem or against Shmuel? But let's see what it says further. The only thing is, look, you should listen to them, but let them know what the judgment of the king, meaning what is the law of the king that they're putting upon themselves. So what did Shmuel do? He went and he told them everything, all the laws of the king. This is going to be the rule of the king. He's going to he's going to draft your sons into his chariots 
as his riders. They're going to run before his chariot. He's going to have them as officers. He's going to make them, press them into service uh, in, in, in his plowing and in his harvesting. In order to uh, produce military uh, military equipment and equipment for his chariots. He's going to take your daughters. They're going to be working in the kitchen. They're going to be working with the spices. They're going to be working with the, ki- in, in the, with the food and the baking. And your fields. Your vineyards. Your olive, play, your olive uh, orchards. Your olive uh, groves. Right, he's going to take him He's going to be able to confiscate your property and take it, eminent domain, whatever. He's going to be able to tax you, basically, is what it's saying. He's going to take your money, right? He's going to take from your your seed and from your wine, your your grapes. And he's going to take that and he's going to give it to those who serve him, to his servants. He's going to take your servants, your maidservants, your young man, and even your donkeys. Wow. And he's going to take, he's going to use them in his service. Um, he's going to take sheep taxes from your sheep. You're going to be slaves. You will cry out on that day from before your king, that you chose for yourselves, and God is not going to answer you. Okay? So what is he telling them? I mean, Hashem just told them to listen to the people, but to warn them what the judgment is going to be and how the king is going to run things. And now he's giving them this doomsday speech and basically implying that uh, what they're doing is going to be a disaster and God is not going to listen to them. Yeah, but he's following the law of what Hashem just told him to do, which was provide them with kings. So what's the problem? It's a very, very, very difficult chapter. Probably one of the most difficult chapters and storylines in the Tanakh. Because on one hand, it seems like it's a mitzvah to have a king. We have David Melech. We're expecting Melech HaMashiach. We're expecting the, the Mashiach to come. One day he's going to be a king. All of this points the idea that having a king is supposed to be good. And according to the Rambam, and according to many sources in Chazal, Som Tasim Alecha Melech is one of the 613 mitzvot. And therefore it's a commandment to have a king. On the other hand, here it sounds like a terrible thing. It sounds like a disaster, a negative. You're not supposed to have a king. But even within the text itself, Hashem is telling him one thing, to go choose a king and at the same time telling him not to choose a king. Or telling him to discourage them and make it sound horrible. Even though he's supposed to then carry out their wish and get a king anyway. So what does that mean? I mean, if you're telling somebody, no, this is a bad choice, you don't go follow it anyway. What kind of a help is that? What kind of a leader is that? Very bizarre. So what's the answer, really? And what does it mean? Are are the people rejecting Hashem or are they rejecting Shmuel? So this is the important principle here. What do the people want? They want security. They want stability. Right? That's really what they want. And where are they? What is the source of their security and their sense of stability? Really, it's supposed to be the Devar Hashem. Really, it's supposed to be Hashem that is the source of their sense of security, that they're following the path of God. Nothing else. But Shmuel, and Shmuel never saw himself as a person who was the provider of any kind of a security. He was just a conduit to lead them to an understanding of Hashem and that knowledge of Torah and that observance of mitzvot 
and the relationship and the connection that they then had with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that was the basis for their sense of security and confidence in all the Bachot that they were going to receive. Nothing else was necessary. But once they saw a, uh, that the Bnei, the Bnei Shemuel are not like Shemuel, they're not just conduits leading the people to God. They're taking for themselves. They're taking, they, you know, they're starting to get involved in making it into a kind of a business. They're, or even according to the literal text of the Tanakh, they're actually taking bribes. In other words, they're not really doing this L'Shem Shamayim anymore. So what could the Jewish people have done? They could have said, look, you're not leaders. Leaders are people who lead us to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Leaders are people that teach us the Torah. Leaders are people who are not interested, who are sonebatza, like it says when Moshe Rabbeinu has to choose leaders of the Jewish people, he has to choose people who hate unjust monetary gain, not people who are attracted to it. We reject you as leaders. We want teachers that are good. We want a Navi that is good. That's really what they should have demanded. But instead, when they saw that Shmuel was planning on passing off the leadership to his sons, and they saw that the sons were not like Shmuel, they rejected it. What does that show you? It shows you that it wasn't really as pure as Shmuel thought. Shmuel thought that what? That he had, he had weaned the Jewish people off of their infantile attachment to a certain personality, charismatic personality, or to certain institutions that gave them a false sense of religious security, even, even though they weren't living up to the standards of the Torah. He thought he had weaned them off of that. And they now understood that only Yediyat Hashem would really save them. But it turned out to not be true, because as soon as Shmuel gets old, and he steps out behind the scenes, they are turning to and throwing their burden onto the sons of Shmuel. And the sons of Shmuel are not up to the task. They're not able to do it. And so then they become disappointed and they become disillusioned. And they say, you know what? If we're going to have anyway leaders who are using the wielding authority over us, who are not like Shmuel, who's just a teacher and a Navi, who are wielding authority over us, and that's all we can hope for, then we must, might as well have a king. We might as well have the real deal. Why are we settling for something in the middle? I mean, either it should be an, a full authority, a full human authority like a king, or somebody like Shmuel, who doesn't claim any authority, who says Hashem is the authority. But if we're going to have something in the middle, then what's the point of this? Now, really, the right answer would have been, we don't need a human being. We have the Torah, and we just need a teacher. And if the sons of Shmuel are not good teachers, we'll get a different teacher. Or we'll go to Shmuel and say, teach us. Find us another Navi. Find us somebody better who can also teach us. Not to look for a king, but because they were attached to a charismatic personality that was giving them a sense of security. And they don't have that in the sons of Shmuel, because sons of Shmuel don't have the greatness of Shmuel, and they don't have the greatness of a king. They don't have that powerful, charismatic personality of a king that establishes order in and of itself and demands respect. And they don't have a person like Shmuel who is selfless in devotion and bringing the people to God. They don't have either of those kind of people. So they say, you know what? We might as well just have a king. That's what we want. And that's why Hashem is telling Shmuel, they're not really rejecting you, Shmuel. They're rejecting Hashem. Just like they did from the time that they left Egypt again and again, they rejected Hashem and went after other gods. What does this have to do with other gods? Meaning, whenever I told them, like when they left Egypt, trust in God, even though the idea is abstract, even though it's metaphysical, it's a transcendent idea, okay? Don't fall into the trap of looking for security in a material form. What did they do? They went to the Egel Zahav right away. 
something physical to give them reassurance and security. What did they do throughout history? They went for the thing that was the easiest shortcut to giving them a sense of confidence and safety, which was some kind of a magical object or some kind of an idol. And when it comes to leaders, it's the same way. Instead of recognizing that knowledge of God and knowledge of Torah and following the path of God is really what give, should give you a sense of bitachon and a sense of security, they, they really were leaning on Shmuel. That's what they were really doing. And so when they tried to lean on his sons and his sons were not on his level, they were not the kind of people that really, they took advantage of the fact that people were leaning on them instead of, uh, instead of empowering the people and raising the people, even though they weren't as bad as, let's say, the B'nai'ili, but they were not doing like Shmuel. So I said, you know what? If we're going to lean on somebody, let us lean on somebody with, wide, with broad shoulders, like they say. A king who can really establish what we need established here, who can really put things in place and we can just close our eyes and rely on it. And what does Shmuel say? You think the current situation is bad, but a king, it's not, a, it's not like the king provides security and stability for no charge. The king's asking you to give yourself up, to give up your freedom, to give up your money, to give up your property, to give up your, you know, so many freedoms and so many aspects of your independence you have to sacrifice in order to have a king who's going to give you in exchange for all of that, the stability and security. It's like the social contract in every society that you give up a certain amount of your, you have to pay taxes, you have to, get, you have to follow laws, you have to give up a certain amount of your independence and your autonomy in exchange for the stability and the security and the, and the protection of the government. That's what he's saying. He's saying he's going he's gonna to squeeze you dry. He's, it's not going to be like the times of Shmuel where Shmuel never took a thing from the people. He just was there to guide them and they independently would follow. Of course, they had elders to make decisions. You can't have uh, nobody making decisions in a community. But those elders were probably volunteer. They were just the elders that made decisions for the benefit of the community. They weren't getting anything out of it. Once you put a king in charge, that king is going to make demands necessary to keep him in his position of power. In other words, in order for him to be a figure who can establish that kind of a stable regime, he has to be empowered. And how is he empowered? At your expense. That's what you're asking for. So you're asking basically to be enslaved in exchange for security. That's what you're asking for. Right? And that's what Shmuel is telling the people. When Shmuel was a leader, he was empowering, freeing them from that kind of thinking. They're asking to go back to be enslaved. And that's why Hashem is saying to Shmuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me, really. They can't just have security and confidence in trusting their knowledge of Hashem. They can't do it. So what? So therefore, they are rejecting you, meaning when Hashem says to Shmuel that uh, they're doing this to you, meaning instead of getting past the idea of being attached to a material thing, to a personality, to a figurehead, they're doing it to you, meaning once again, they've taken you as a type of a figurehead, okay? And because they can't do without you, because they can't do without a person that they feel gives them that stability and security, they're willing to throw it all away to have a king. And you know what? That shows that they're not ready because if you've had the best of the best, that's why Hashem is, is, is capitulating. Because if you've had Shmuel as your leader, and even after having Shmuel as your leader, and even with Shmuel still there, 
you'd rather give up all of those freedoms in order to enslave yourself to a king in exchange for security. Just like the Jews who were in Egypt or in the desert said, let's give it all up and go back to Egypt because it's too scary to be on our own. It's too scary to go into Eretz Israel, or it's too scary to be in the desert on our own. Let's go back to Egypt where we could just throw ourselves at the feet of the Egyptians and be slaves and be safe. Right? That's what they're saying again. Not to the same extreme. They still expect that they'll follow the Derech HaTorah. They still expect it's going to be a Jewish king. It's not going to be real enslavement, but they're going to give a good amount of their freedom away for the sake of this benefit. And they said, Ve'ainu. So, so th- th- the point was that uh, Shmuel says to them, after he gives them the whole list of the things the king is going to do, no, we're going to have a king. We don't, want to, we don't care. We'll take it. Let us be like every other nation. Why do we have to be this weird nation that we don't really have a king? We trust in God who is abstract and we, have, and we organize our community and our leadership around ideas that are abstract and, and a God who is invisible and transcendent. Why do we have to have that? Why can't we just be like every other nation that has a king? And this king is our savior. Not that they're going to believe that ad kedekach, that they actually don't believe in God anymore. But why can't we have a figurehead like everybody else who sets policies, who keeps us in line, who gives us the security and stability of keeping order and so on? Why can't we have that? So Shmuel goes back to Hashem with these words of, uh, of the people. Now we know what's going to happen is now Shmuel's going to go on to choose the first king of Israel is going to be Shaul. But before we get to that, what's really important to see here is that it's not a contradiction, by the way, to say that it's a mitzvah for there to be a king and to say that the request of the king of the people at this time was wrong. Why not? Because if the Jewish people had reached the level of knowledge of Hashem and maturity, spiritual, cultural maturity, moral maturity, that really they were following the path of God. And the purpose of having a king was for the king to keep order, to, to make sure to enforce the laws of the Torah, who was going to be beholden himself to the laws of the Torah and simply implementing those laws and helping and being a unifying leader uh, among the people, that would have been okay. In other words, that's a practical desire for a king at the right time. But they didn't want that. They wanted a sense of security and a sen- they wanted their sense of security and their sense of safety to come from the king. And that was what was unhealthy. That they wanted to sack, they wanted to recede into an infantile state where they could depend on a human being, a powerful big daddy who was the one who was providing for them and who was protecting them. That's what they were seeking. Because it came from an immaturity and because it came from a deficiency, that's why it was considered bad. Even though Hashem said they're not, they're not going to reach the level. They've come to a roadblock in their development and unless they get this king, they're going to sink even further. So Hashem needs to choose a king who is the most likely to help them grow instead of to, uh, to uh, basically further retard their growth. But in essence, the idea is that in the future, had they matured along the path of Shmuel and Navi 
to really understand what it meant for Hashem to be their king and then had selected a king and the king was a practical functionary who had limited powers in accordance with the Torah and whose job was to lead the people on the Derech Hashem and was just necessary because it's necessary to have one person at the top who is the, you know, every, even the governments that are democracies have somebody at the top. You have to have somebody at the top who is the leader, who is the figurehead, who is the one who, uh, who, you know, the buck stops here or whatever in terms of responsibility for the direction of the people. But that would have been in a context of a nation that had matured in its understanding of God, that their real constitution was the Torah, their real sense of security was coming from God, and they understood that the king was just a practical matter to have a king, so that there could be order and uh, and and there could things could be organized and things could be you know and things could be uh, uh, properly um, goal directed requires some kind of an executive basically he would be an executive, but because they wanted it for infantile reasons because of immaturity, that's why they were criticized. And that's why Shmuel tries to dissuade them by showing them how painful it will be to have a king, how risky it is, how much they're giving up to have a king. Right? He doesn't focus on the fact that they're rejecting God as their king because that idea was too advanced for them. He tried to speak to them emotionally to, to, to address how having a king was going to affect them negatively, but they didn't accept it. They, they were attached to the idea that they needed a king in order to feel stable, in order to feel secure. And that was why asking for a king was wrong, even though it's still a mitzvah and at the right time in history in the future, it would have been the right move. It would have been the correct move to have one executive who was uh, overseeing the entire project of developing the Jewish people and had that responsibility. But at this stage of the game, it was unhealthy. And that's why Shmuel opposes it, sees it as a failing, as a backsliding, tries to stop it, but eventually, you know, has to make peace with it and try to make the best out of it. And we'll see that this whole conflict over the king and who should be the king and what, how the king should be received and whether it's good, whether it's bad, all of that is going to play out over the next couple of chapters with Shaul's selection and, uh, and eventually with Shaul's uh, 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 difficulty uh, acclimating to the position of king and, and what goes wrong there. But Bezrat Hashem, we'll see that starting... Uh, starting Sunday, because uh, Thursdays I'm generally not here uh, due to my travel schedule. 